Um, thank you so much, Professor Little, for that introduction. And I'd like to thank the Merjan Center, the Department of Political Science, the Center of Middle Eastern Studies, all for hosting and sponsoring my visit here. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, today I'll present um, some of the major findings of my book, Barriers to Democracy, The Other Side of Social Capital and Palestine in the Arab World. Um, this book was published last summer. Um, and basically my presentation today I'll be focusing on the bulk of the project, which focuses on Palestine, but um, there are other uh, case study evidence from Morocco, Jordan, and Egypt, and if anybody's interested in, in those cases, I'd be more than happy to discuss them in the question and answer period. So basically, my project deals with the notion of to what extent can we expect civil society to promote democratic outcomes in regions that are not guided by democratic institutions? Um, and if you want to, if you look at some of the primary motivation behind this research question is that in the last decade or so, we've seen that a lot of the policy focus emanate, emanating from D.C., from the United States, or from at least the Western world towards the Middle East, in particular the Arab world, um, has focused on this notion um, or question that, or, or, or the major question is whether or not civil society organizations, civil society on the ground can promote democracy. So if you look at the, the majority of our U.S. fundings towards democracy promotion initiatives um, between the years of 1991 to 2001, they primarily focused on civil society, clearly buying into the idea that if we instill the proper ingredients, if you may, at the civil society level, then citizens can come together, converge, mobilize, and make demands on existing political institutions. Today, with the renewed emphasis on democracy and the newly created Middle East Partnership Initiative, or MEPI, again, civil society remains a key sector, a key site for democracy promotion initiatives. Now, this basically kind of highlights the policy motivation behind this research question, but also there's a theoretical motivation behind this research question. There's been a long um, scholarly tradition um, in, in studies of American politics and studies of citizen participation. Um, citizen involvement in the political process that's looked at civil society organizations as schools of civic virtue in civil society organizations in associations that are geared towards um, are geared towards the political process geared towards affecting the political process or in secondary associations that are not political right um, whether they're sports clubs or women's groups or charitable societies citizens come together and learn the art of of, of participation, they learn how to, to engage one another in meaningful ways, they learn how to tolerate one another. So in other words, civic associations serve as schools of civic virtue, and in these civic associations, you acquire civic skills like voting, like engaging one another, listening to one another, working with another, one another, and these qualities all bode well for participating more actively in the democratic process, or at least in a, in a process that perhaps can garner democratic concessions from the state. So that's one major theoretical um, strand of the literature that examines the democratizing effects of civil society. Um, another strand in the literature that looks at civic associations, of course, is, is Bob Putnam's Making Democracy Work, where he argues that in civic associations, <coughs> citizens, um, cit the, Levels of social capital among citizens increase. In other words, in, in, civil, in civil society associations, citizens learn to cooperate with one another. They learn to engage one another. There's norms of reciprocity that, are, that emerge where people, learn to be, or people become to have expectations of, of one another. And these levels of social capital then enable people to work collectively together to basically mobilize make demands on the state to basically participate um, in, in existing avenues vis-a-vis -vis the state. In other words, it transforms individuals into collectivities, and these collectivities are essential for making democracy work, but also for perhaps trying to collectivize to garner more democratic demands from the state. So in other words, levels of social capital are seen as extremely important in terms of what civil society can accomplish in the way of democratic promotion and, and democ the democratization trajectory more generally. And finally, in civic associations, there's another strand in this literature that argues in, in civic associations, you learn to appreciate democratic values, the democratic process. You learn to appreciate the right to vote, to, for example, respect majority rule, um, that everybody has a voice, 
um, to, you, know, you know, minorities kind of have to respect the rule of the majority so that in civic associations, again, through the act of coming together, working with one another, engaging one another, uh, uh, listening to one another, you also learn to appreciate democracy. So in essence, the literature on civil society underscores the importance of coming together in these confines or sectors, in these vehicles, to influence democracy more generally. But basically what I argue in my book is that if we take any of these premises, whether or not you know, civic associations are schools of civic virtue, if we look at the other strand that basically argues that civic associations enhance levels of social capital, and we look at the, the last strand that you know, civic associations can teach citizens to become more appreciative of democracy, if we take any of these strands and we argue, we ask ourselves, how are these strands important for civic engagement, useful to democratic outcomes, that there is a built-in assumption in these theories or an unexamined assumption in these theories that basically that democratic representative institutions mediate the effects of civic associations on democratic outcomes. So in other words, Yes, you can learn the values of appreciation, tolerance, respect for one another in civic associations, but the likelihood of, of, of you being able to leave the confines of the association and applying yourself in society in ways that will promote civic engagement, which will then be useful for democracy, kind of already assumes that you're living in a democratic context. Otherwise, how can I, if I'm in, sorry, in a civic association, take my skills Right? Let's say I become more appreciative of democracy, I value my right to vote, um, I am more tolerant as a result of being in a civic association, but with the minute I leave my civic association, I'm either confronted with political repression, the avenues of political participation are not guaranteed by mere virtue of citizenship, I can't really express this capital, not necessarily social capital, but this political and civic capital that I've acquired in the associations in the larger context because I really don't live in a democracy to begin with. So that's the, the major premise and the major question that I put forth in this book. So the major research question of my project then is what role do associations actually play in enhancing levels of civic engagement important for democracy in non-democratic settings? So if we look at some of the empirical expectations that emerge from this scholarship and, and even our the, the policy um, motivations that influence why we funnel so much money towards civil society organizations, what we expect is that when citizens come together in civic associations, their levels of in, interpersonal trust or social capital will increase, as will their levels of support or appreciation for democracy. These are second-order consequences of participating in civic associations. And that one of the built-in assumptions in this literature is that as your levels of social capital increase, um, which, again, um, which again here I'm operationalizing as interpersonal trust, as, as your trust in others um, increases through the act of civic participation, so too should your support for democratic institutions, your appreciation for democracy, um, your desire to have democracy, your desire to believe that democracy is a system, a regime that can basically guarantee your interests as well as the interests of other citizens in society. However, if we take a, well, sorry, and if we look at my evidence, my empirical evidence, I'm sorry to bore you with this, this, this table, just but, to, but to be really brief, if we look at the, the survey evidence that emerges from the context of the West Bank in 1999 when I conducted my field work, um, what you'll find is that while controlling for other demographic variables, we find that associational members indeed, indeed do show, or, or at least there's a strong link between associational members, people who are involved in civic association, and their levels of interpersonal trust. So at the surface, at the face value of this, one might argue, see, more associations in the Palestinian context are producing some desired results here because look at their levels of interpersonal trust are higher than the general population. This is a sample of the general pop Palestinian population. Uh, again, this was um, in 1999 when I conducted my field work. But when we examine the data more carefully, what we find is that there's this inverse relationship that emerges between levels of interpersonal trust and support for democracy. So although civic associations in are directly linked to higher levels of interpersonal trust. There was an inverse relationship in my findings between support for democracy and 
interpersonal trust. In fact, with, it, with a unit shift um, in interpersonal trust between, uh, from low to high, we found a unit shift in, in the decrease of support for democratic institutions by a probability of 21%. So this did not conform to what the expectations of the literature, or at least our policy expectations, our theoretical expectations um, that, 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 that exist in the literature. So then basically what explains this inverse relationship between levels, my levels of social capital here and support for democratic institutions? And basically what I argue is that you have to understand the context of the West Bank in 1999 to understand the inverse relationship, what was going on at the associational level um, more generally. Basically, in 1999, and for just to give you a brief, brief history, the Oslo Accords were signed in 1993. Um, and more or less, if you were uh, monitoring the events of Oslo um, and, and, and watching the developments of Oslo, it was supposed to result in a two-state solution between where you know, Palestinians and Israelis would finally have two states coexist. Um, by the year 2000, that was not the reality. The Oslo Accords fell apart. There was a new Palestinian uprising. Um, and, and, and I guess the parties really haven't come back to the negotiating table since, in a sense. Um, but in 1999, when I conducted my field work, people were still expecting that the Oslo Accords was going to result in, in some type of two-state solution. Um, but also by 1999, um, the realities on the West Bank didn't really conform to the expectations of what everybody envisioned a Palestinian state would look like. Um, what we see is that the Palestinian National Authority, which became, was institutionalized as the governing authority in the West Bank and Gaza or in Palestine, and I refer to Palestine as the West Bank and Gaza from, uh, in this talk, is that um, he came to power, consolidated his rule, and really centralized his authority. And people might argue that there were reasons why Yasser Arafat had to do that, and I'd be more than happy to discuss um, whether or not this was a strategic choice that Yasser Arafat pursued for purposes of the peace process and the Israeli occupation and whatnot. But for purposes of this discussion and to explain what was happening at the, gra at the, at the grassroots level, it's important to say that when Yasser Arafat, or by 1999, Yasser Arafat was ruling the Palestinian territories almost... Uh, in a, well, let's put it this way, in a very authoritarian type of manner. Um, so this, is, this was one of the key, key features that really explained what was happening then at the civil society level. Um, by 1999, Yasser Arafat continued to expand his networks, um, his ties, his clientelistic base, his patronage base, to basically make sure that everything remained centralized in his own hands, this included the, civil, the civic sector as well. He, he, he really tried to co-opt, continued to try to co-opt the civic sector, tried to basically buy off people or buy off potential opposition that emerged in that civic sector, and wanted basically more or less everything to be under his own control. Um, at this time, though, you know, institutionally, the West Bank had some elements of a democracy. Um, remember, there were Palestinian elections in 1996 where members of the Palestinian Legislative Council were elected. And Yasser Arafat was also popularly elected as the president of the Palestinian National Authority during this time. But because so much of the government was an extension of Arafat's personal rule, democratic institutions in the West Bank remained weak during this time period. Um, the rule of law remained extremely weak during, during this, this period. Um, and this was not only due to the fact that Arafat was more or less authoritarian, it was also due to the fact of the, the historical legacy of the Palestinian legal system. Remember, you know, before the Israeli occupation ended on, or, or at least during this time period when the Israeli occupation was, was gradually um, being reduced during, and, and, and more authority was given to the Palestinians, what you saw was that it wasn't clear to the Palestinians what type of legal code they should adopt um, for their new state. So if you looked at the legal codes that existed in 1999, you had legal codes that emerged from the Ottoman Empire, you had legal codes that existed under the British Empire or the the British the, the British co colony colonial rule there in the British Mandate, and you had laws that existed from the Israeli occupation. So there was it's fair to say that there was some confusion as to what legal source the Palestinians were going to resort to. I mean, one of my favorite stories to tell is that you know by uh, at the end of the you know the the, the, the British uh, Mandate. 
you know, women no longer really had to seek the approval of a male companion to travel or a male relative to travel. Um, and then under Israeli occupation, they didn't need... Um, they didn't need the permission of a male relative to travel. This is one of those um, Islamic laws that had existed in, in, in you know, several, several decades ago that, that, that a lot of states have now moved to change in the Arab world. But all of a sudden, so for a long time, women could travel freely because they weren't, th this law didn't exist. But all of a sudden, during the Oslo period, as people were trying to, to define and specify what legal codes uh, would emerge, um, all of a sudden, this, 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 this law became existent, and all of a sudden, women needed to seek uh, you know, permission from a male relative to travel outside of Palestine. Of course, it, it didn't last for long, but again, this is the kind of negotiations that were happening at the societal level in terms of figuring out what the rule of law, what legal code the Palestinians would adopt. So there was some confusion about what rules, uh, what rules to use, but also the rule of law remained weak because Yasser Arafat wanted to concentrate so much power in the executive branch and really denied the legislative branch and the judicial branch the necessary autonomy to be effective, um, to be effective institutions in terms of implementing the rule of law. Furthermore, during this time period, there were very few constitutional limits on the power of the executive branch within the, 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 the Palestinian National Authority. Again, Yasser Arafat was capable of vetoing all legislative decrees um, he would make a point of showing up at you know, legislative parliamentary sessions, taking a seat, making sure that he objected to a lot of the deliberations that were happening in the legislative council, reminding everybody that nothing within the parliament would be passed or pushed forward without his approval. Um, he vetoed. There was some, some 200 laws were, were voted on in parliament and that none of them really received Yasser Arafat's approval. So he was very good about sending things back to parliament, keeping parliament as a deliberative, deliberative body that really couldn't affect major policies um, in the area. You know, he, he wanted a constitution. He pushed for a constitution, but he pushed for a constitution that would basically give him a lot of authority. So there, there were very few constitutional limits on his own authority during this time period. Furthermore, one way he further concentrated his executive power was that he just consistently rewarded followers, rewarded those who supported him, and sanctioned defectors. Um, <coughs> it was a lot easier, or, and, and he established basically a clientelistic network where people can basically derive services through his connections, through his base, and not through other legal channels. So also basically creating and reinforcing this, this patronage system and a clientelistic system where, him, where, his, where he and his networks could help society and any opposition or those who weren't in those, you know, those, those client networks really couldn't help society. So society became more or less geared towards figure out, figuring out who were the major players at the time. It was far more easier in 1999, for example, if you just wanted to build a house to go to, to figure out who, who were the major players, sorry, in Ramallah or in, in, in the villages who had connections to Yasser Arafat, pay them a fee, you know, the bribe, and get your license, and it was, then it was actually to go to the legal office to get things done. So this is the type of system that, that kind of emerged. Um, furthermore, not only did Yasser Arafat extend his awards to his, his supporters, but in many cases he also employed them. So by 1999, 25% of the entire Palestinian workforce worked for Yasser Arafat. Um, you know, and, 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 and you know, this was not necessarily sustainable for any government to sustain that percentage of your labor force. But in all fairness, also, I mean, at least you know, when you point this out as 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 as, as a criteria that shows the extent to which Yasser Arafat was willing to consolidate his rule, to to and, and basically exercise, you know, this 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 this, uh, uh, I suppose, mind-boggling levels of executive concentration of authority, people will also point out that during this time period there were closures, um, uh, there were closures on the West Bank that prevented Palestinians from working in Israel, so Yasser Arafat was actually doing a favor to the Palestinians by employing them. So there's, there's this other side of the debate, but nevertheless, for whatever the reasons that we can provide that led the PNA to become the largest sector of employer, um, employment on the West Bank, he had a huge chunk of the Palestinian population held accountable directly to him. And so this is basically what happened. Furthermore, during this time period, what we see is that allegations of corruption among public, uh, uh, among public officials appeared to be on the rise and were seldom accounted for. 
Several sources indicate that senior members of the Palestinian National Authority continue to export monies to anonymous bank accounts in Geneva and in New York. Estimate, some estimates, some estimates put, put the amounts at over $20 billion during this time period. Frustration due to corruption was on the rise, and if we look at at least Palestinian public opinion, in 1999, 70%, close to 70% of the Palestinian population believed that there was widespread corruption in the ranks of the Palestinian National Authority. About a few years earlier, um, in, in a few years earlier, 1995, that percentage was only closer to 50%. So gradually, as the Palestinian National Authority um, stayed in power, the Palestinian public also began to feel that it was increasingly becoming corrupt. By 2005, I believe, sorry, by 2002, 85% of the Palestinian public believed that there was widespread corruption in the rank of the PNA. The Council on Foreign Relations summed up the situation in 1999, basically saying that Yasser Arafat, president of the Palestinian National Authority, has concentrated executive power so completely in his own hands that he personally approves all senior officials' vacations and expenses. Arafat has used government jobs to ease unemployment and to reward political loyalty to, to such an extent that the public sector is now bloated, inefficient, and risks incurring staggering debts to pay pensions. The Palestinian Legislative Council, the parliament, is relatively impotent. The, the judiciary is in disarray. Unregulated monopolies rule many industries, and the police force abuses its powers. I mean, one of, one of the most, um, I guess, damaging stories uh, that discredited the Palestinian National Authority in the eyes of Palestinians and is, that when it, is that it was revealed later on um, in, I think, around 2000, 2001, after I did my own research, it, that one of the monopolies, one of Yasser Arafat's monopolies that was controlling the construction sector was actually providing the cement and the concrete to build the wall surrounding the West Bank. So this didn't go over well with the Palestinian public at all. Um, so given this context, it was clear that the West Bank was still developing its democratic institutions, and within this non-to-semi-democratic context, I wanted to examine whether associational life on the West Bank helps or hinders democratization. In comparison to other Arab states at the time, and even in the developing world more generally, Palestinians were very much involved in civic associations. Uh, actually, at, you know, almost 20% of the entire population um, did participate in some form of civic association or another. This is also due to the political history of the Palestinian context. After the 1967 war with Israel, a number of community-based organizations emerged in the West Bank and Gaza to directly represent the needs and interests of the Palestinian people. By the late 1970s, as the Israeli occupation outlawed Palestinian political factions, the ter uh, sorry, in the territories, parties or factions like Fetih, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, these are the leftist organizations along with the Communist Party, turned towards community-based organizations as a way of continuing their work and building political support. As the occupation encroached on the national institutions and targeted the political leadership, Lisa Tariki, a scholar at Birzeit University, tells us, the national movement had two options, either confine itself to clandestine work but sacrifice a growing mass base, or evolve alternative open structures that would be more difficult to destroy. The movement realized that efforts had to be directed to addressing the concrete needs of different sectors of society within the framework of mass organization, within the framework of civic associations. Um, the leader in these efforts was the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine with its Maoist vision of grassroots mobilization. Soon thereafter, other factions followed suit and by the late 1980s, it was common to find four of the same women's organizations, four of the same sports clubs, four of the same charitable societies in any given locale. Again, this was factual competition, but nevertheless, it resulted in an active civic uh, presence at the grassroots level. By the early 1990s, as it became clear that the Palestinian uprising, the first Palestinian uprising, or the first intifada of 1987, was going to result in some type of settlement between the PLO and Israel, an influx of donor money, an influx of donor money from the international community went to local Palestinian organizations under the guise of civil society for democratic development. There was a lot of emphasis being placed by the international community um, that any new government emerging on the West Bank in Palestine need, need, needed to be a democracy. 
democracy was seen as important for the peace process, and democracy was also seen as important for Arab relations in general, Arab regional relations. And we can talk about what the Hamas election, how the Hamas election, you know, informed um, this, 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 this conviction, if you may. Um, so my claim here, though, is that because we're dealing with a, set, a setting, a context that is not guided or structured by democratic institutions, associational life will influence civic engagement differently in this non-democratic context than, than in democracies. Further, my major argument is that relative associational access to the political system will influence members' civic engagement differently within a given context. In other words, if you're in an association that has strong links to the government, or put differently, if you're in an association that is embedded in the clientelistic channels of the regime, you're going to exhibit and have different levels and, 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 and quality, if you may, of civic engagement than if you are in a civic association that is not embedded in the clientelistic channels of the regime. So what does it mean to be in a clientelistic civic association versus a non-clientelistic civic association? So let me give you some interview evidence on what this meant, at least to the leaders of these civic associations. So when I asked the question of uh, civic association leaders, suppose a government office doesn't deliver services it says it will provide. In your opinion, what would be the best way to convince the government offices to deliver the service? Now, this is coming from a pro-PNA associational leader, or what I term in the book as an association, an association that is embedded in the clientelistic channels. Here's the response from the leader. There are higher levels that we will go to. If they do not cooperate with us, if they, the government, does not cooperate with us, we will go to higher levels and we will go directly to the president himself. The president works extremely well with us. Today I received money to help people with health issues and he shows me the signature from the PNA office. Actually, the signature was from Yasser Arafat himself. And this association had nothing to do with health care or with helping the sick people or it was a, an association in a refugee camp that was a sports club, had ping pong tables, it had trophies, uh, soccer trophies, but this association was in the vicinity of almost 10,000 Palestinians, and it, beca it became like the, 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 the key place to go to. Um, if you're a member in the civic association, basically you're guaranteed privileges. You can, you can get such services as money to, you know, for health, for health issues or money to basically support your sick mom who needs to go, who needs to travel to Jordan to get better medical treatment. In other words, this was a client, this, this sports club served as this clientelistic gateway. You know, and this leader had just had lunch with Yasser Arafat, which Yasser Arafat did commonly. He would invite members of civic associations from the refugee camps, take pictures with them, give them the pictures so they can go back and hang up in their civic associations to basically let people know also that this, this is the type of, uh, these are the type of rewards you get by being involved in this type of civic association. Um, so he was very happy that day and you know, spent a lot of time with me talking about the civic association. Now compare that response to a non-PNA supporting associational leader. Asking the same question, here's the response. We will not do anything. The Ministry of Sports and Youth promised to help us with our summer camps that we held for children and youth. They had promised to give us such supplies as T-shirts. They did not give it to us. And basically, the, civic, you know, the leader saying, I can't do anything, very frustrated, because not only, cannot, you know, that, not only that, you know, he's unable to provide his members the type of goods and um, amenities that the propane associations are providing their, their members, but he also feels that he has no recourse. That he's kind of stuck, right? And, and, and something that I really want to talk about later in the Q&A, compounding this issue, <coughs> is that donor, uh, external donors were much more likely to want to fund associations that, that professed loyalty, if you may, to the PNA at the time because they felt that associations that were loyal to the PNA were also loyal to Oslo. And basically you wanted to support a pro-Oslo civic civil society at the time. So not only were, were these type of civic leaders unable to get money from the government, they weren't very successful in terms of attracting money elsewhere uh, from, from other sources either. So this was a, a major issue. Um, 
the type of also like again this was a sports club um, they had you know youth from the ages of 14 to 25 involved in the civic association if you looked at the pro PNA sports clubs they all had these nice you know summer camp hats and t-shirts and flags and they, they would go on field trips to interesting places whereas whereas if you were not in, in those type of channels you weren't able to keep your members on board I mean you know if you if you have a 16 or 17 or 18 year old they want to go out and have fun and enjoy their summer vacation and not basically, you know, be committed to a, a civic association that has moral principles against the Palestinian National Authority. That's not really going to travel very far. Um, again, some more interview evidence. Um, when, when I asked these pro-PNA civic associations, you know, how do you evaluate the PNA? Again, there was this, 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 this you know, commitment, this loyalty, you know, uh, to the PNA that the PNA needed to be supported. For example, this leader says the PNA is new, the conditions of the PNA are poor, the PNA is trying to get money for itself, we are with it, it is weak, it is haram, it is a sin to even attack it or to criticize it. So this was a kind of like the, the loyalty that was galvanizing around the Palestinian National Authority and Yasser Arafat during this time period. But when we ask the same questions to non-PNA supporting associations, here's kind of, you get a different flavor in the responses. There are no factories. There are no jobs. Everybody works for the PNA and as part of the police force. We used to be occupied by one power. Now we are occupied by two. So this was also kind of the, the sense of what was happening, at least in those civic associations, that were not uh, very friendly to Yasser Arafat. So my hypothesis then, going back to that original research question and the inverse relationship between levels of social capital, or as operationalized in my, my talk as levels of interpersonal trust and support for democratic institutions, is that basically what I'm hypothesizing is that associations with close ties to the Palestinian National Authority will instill higher levels of interpersonal trust and lower levels of support for democratic institutions. And just to be, um, let me give you my causal explanations here. Why, why is it that if you're in a pre, sorry, pro-PNA civic association, you'll end up having lo higher levels of trust and lower levels of support for democratic institutions? To answer the, the latter part of that question, it's straightforward. Why would I want to alter the status quo if I am benefiting from the existing status quo, right? So that's a straightforward, a rational calculation right there. But then this issue of interpersonal trust. Why would being a member in a pro-PNA civic association increase your levels of interpersonal trust? And here I argue that the mechanism is structured around two, two causes. One is that, again, it's a straightforward uh, kind of cost-benefit analysis. If I know that I am protected by the channels of government, the channels of government which are basically overwhelming society, then I can afford to trust others. Because if somebody's going to violate my levels of trust, you know, and look, thinking of trust here as, as this whole, like, the, 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 this a concept of, or adopting a framework of risk aversion. If I'm going to be able to trust you and work with you, and you're going to violate that trust, I can basically go back to my clientelistic channels and they'll have my back. So I, therefore, am much more capable of, capable of trusting others. Another also explanation, building on this line of argumentation, is that there's also this, the, the other side of trust is that, I suppose, the need side of it, right? In other words, if I need you to cooperate with me because I'm really frustrated with the status quo and I want to mobilize against the status quo, and I see that you know, all of a sudden all of you are in the clientelistic channels of you know, Yasser Arafat's P&A, I'm not going to be able to trust you because I just feel like you guys have become corrupted, you guys are not sticking to your democratic values, so I'm going to say I'm not going to be able to trust you. But if I, if I really don't need you to begin with, if I don't need you to come collectivize with me and work with me and share my ideas, because you know what, I'm vertically linked already. I don't need these horizontal attachments to you, sorry to put it bluntly, then it doesn't matter if I trust you or not. There's not much value linked to my level. I can trust all of you as far as I'm concerned because there's no need for that, those levels of trust. So it makes, it makes the ability to trust much, quote unquote, cheaper to be vertically linked to, this power, uh, sorry, to these power structures of authority. And conversely, what I argue is that if you're not in a clientelistic association, your levels of trust will fall for the same logic that I just outlined, and your support for democratic institutions will increase. So this explains, are the, are the, these are the hypotheses I'm advancing that explain the inverse relationship that, uh, that, that exists be, uh, among Palestinian civic associational members. What data do I use to, to 
make or substantiate this argument. Again, I had, it, it, it was a multi-level project. I had three sources of, of data. The first was the random survey of Palestinian members, sorry, Palestinian uh, society. Um, and that was uh, an N of 1200. And the Jerusalem Media and Communication Center really helped me in, in, in conducting this survey of Palestinians. I also then conducted open-ended open interviews with over 67 leaders of civic associations on the West Bank. Again, these were randomly selected civic associations from a comprehensive list of civic associations that the UNDP had compiled right before I went to do my field work. And then I also surveyed associational members of the civic associations that um, of the civic associations that made it into this sample, I then randomly surveyed about 10 to 15 members from each civic association. The type of organizations that I sampled included, you know, a lot, a lot, the majority of, of them were secondary associations consisting of sports clubs, women's groups, charitable societies, and town associations. They were predominantly sector. 48% of members are, or sorry, were in non-PNA supporting associations at the time, and 52% were in pro-PNA supporting associations at the time. Um, and basically, I'm looking here at levels of interpersonal trust measured here as generalized trust in society and support for democratic institutions, was, which consisted of an index variable that tapped into such things as, you know, can the parliament impeach the president? Do you support uh, minority rights within your, your, your context? Really tapping into um, support for democratic institutions and democratic procedures. And basically what I find is that the first part of the evidence here is that this this, this this cross tab here substantiates the first part of my hypothesis that basically if you're in a PNA supporting association, you're more likely to have higher levels of interpersonal trust than if you than if you're in a non a non PNA supporting or non yeah non PNA supporting association. Um, so that being in those vertical networks of of of, of the clientelistic uh, channels of the regime are linked to higher levels of interpersonal trust. When we, when we model this in logistic regression analysis, again, if you look at that first row, if you're in a PNA supporting civic association, you're more likely controlling for other factors, and I'll talk about these other controls in just a second, you're more likely to have higher levels of interpersonal trust and lower levels of support for democratic institutions. In this particular table, I was also looking at whether or not cooperating with, with government ministries, dealing with the government ministries, um, whether PNA evaluations had an independent effect, um, separate from whether or not you supported, you were in a supporting PNA association, and then also looking at the source of funding, whether or not your association was being funded domestically or you were receiving external funding. And one of the hypotheses here was that if you were an external recipient or recipient of, of donor monies, you were more likely to be supportive of democracy. I didn't find any support for that. And again, none of the other type of interactions with government mattered. What really mattered was whether or not your, your association was um, in a, uh, your association was more or less or had this type of clientelistic access to the, um, to the Palestinian National Authority. And then when we control for other demographic variables um, in these models, these, these findings remain robust um, in terms of the role of the association and the degree of clientelism and how it structures these um, levels of civic engagement. So basically what I find is among associational members, those with higher levels of interpersonal trust have lower levels of support for democratic institutions. These are more likely to be members in pro-PNA civic associations. And then conversely, if you're in a, a, an anti-PNA association or non-PNA supporting association, you're more likely to have higher levels of support for democracy and lower levels of support, uh, sorry, and lower levels of interpersonal trust. And basically this is to explain what was going on. Again, if, you know, the PNA supporting associations are here. Those that had higher levels of interpersonal trust had lower levels of support for democratic institutions. And then again, up in that other quadrant is where the non-PNA supporting associations were located. So basically, to recap the argument here is that associational life is useful for types and patterns of civic engagement that will promote democratic institutions is premised on the notion that democratic institutions shape the type of that democratic institutions shape this whole process where we don't have democratic institutions it's questionable whether this relationship will hold and in conclusion, 
Basically, in non-democratic settings, relative political access is important in explaining levels of civic engagement and the quality of civic engagement, what those levels of civic engagement mean. And though interpersonal trust may be important in enhancing types of behavior that reinforce democratic governments, it may also be important in reinforcing authoritarian structures of rule. Thank you very much, and I look forward to taking your questions. Oh, okay. Please. Yes, from the church point of view, uh, did you treat the male, female, Christian Palestinians, or Muslim Palestinians, were they different from each other or not? Are any other variable that we have a rural, uh, urban, educated, developed education? Yeah, no, these were important demographic controls that I looked at and I examined. Um, the levels of edu education tended to matter. Um, not consistently in the analysis, but what we did find, or what I did find is that um, those more educated were more likely to be critical of the PNA, but they were it, 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 but they weren't more likely to be involved in a pro-PNA association versus an anti-PNA association. So outside of civic participation, what you found that those who were educated were more critical of the P, uh, of the PNA, but this didn't carry over into the associational terrain. Um, on the urban-rural or the urban-village distinction, that was an important one. Um, there you find that in the village populations, Yasser Arafat had a little bit more control than the urban centers, um, um, especially around Ramallah and its, and, and its villages um, there. Um, but again, this didn't extend because then if you waited out the, you know, where the presence of the civic associations were, most of them, or not most of them, but a good percentage of them were located in the urban centers. Um, so again, that kind of balances out in terms of how it weighed, um, in terms of segregating this whole notion of were you in a pro-PNA or an anti-PNA civic association at the time. Um, the Christian-Muslim divide is one that I looked at. It, it didn't explain... Um, that much, but again, the Christian population, in, you know, is, is lower than 10% um, of the Palestinian, you know, the whole national sample. Um, I mean, just recapturing what um, I learned is that, you know, most of the Christian population is located around Ramallah, and they tend to constitute, um, they, 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 they tend to constitute, um, I want to say, you know, or at least significant numbers tend to be in the opposition to the PNA at the time. But again, this didn't extend over to the associational terrain, um, perhaps because, um, you know, I didn't include churches and, and religious societies as such in my sample. But if you look at other associations, even like the YMCA that predominantly attract, you know, Christians um, and not necessarily Muslims. Basically, they had like three YMCA's in my sample, two of which were pro-PNA. So they were co-opted by Yasser Arafat, or they, they, they sought to be co-opted by Yasser Arafat. So it's, I don't want to say that it's only you know, unidirectional. Some people actually felt that they were better off if they could basically become part of the, the, the PNA networks. Um, and one of them wasn't part of those PNA channels at the time. The male-female divide. Again, the male-female the male divide did not significantly um, alter these findings. Um, I so in other words, you can't say that you know, men were, were more likely to be in pro-PNA associations versus women. Basically, the, the likelihood of each being in a pro or anti-PNA association was similar across um, these, uh, this, this, this cleavage that I present. Uh, yeah, what you do a comparison, have you done any comparison with other countries, for example, the United States? You've got 20 percent actually participating. That's about 20 times more, or about 10 times more than happened in the United States. Right. And you could easily get 85 percent, including John McCain, who said Congress is totally corrupt. Right. Uh, in other words, maybe the problems with the theory, right. not with the Palestinians or the Palestinian state. Right. In other words, it's based on um, you know a, a theory that just doesn't make any sense anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question. So in other words, in, uh, I guess to rephrase the argument, is this really specific to non-democratic context? Couldn't we argue that, well, you see these things happening in democracies as well, including the United States? Yeah, even Chicago. Even Chicago, New Jersey. Um, I mean, that, that's a valid point. And, um, you, know, one of the, you know, one of the sites that I've often thought about is also India. You know, would, would, would we say that India would escape these formulas? And I, I, I mean, corruption is endemic. Right. 
Right, and, 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 and in the book I spend some time discussing this, like so what's kind of like the cutoff rate between a, a non-democracy and a democracy, and basically the argument there is that at least at some level, um, yes, there might be corruption, and yes, where there is, you know, per, you know where, 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 where corruption dominates or predominates, this, these are the type of relationships we expect to find, but nevertheless, if you're in... Pork, right, and distribution of pork and clientelism. But, but nevertheless, if you're in an anti, if you're in the anti-civil society camp, right, you're in the camp that's not in, embedded in these networks. You have other options to build your base. You have other options to try to hold at least, you know, the the, the, the centralized executive branch more accountable. That by living in a democratic society, you still have other avenues of political participation, of political contestation, of trying to express your interest in ways that might allow you to escape what I found in the Palestinian territories, right? So that you, you're, you'll be able to trust others and work with others for the common good. Whereas here, because things were so centralized, and you were either, sort of like, just to put it bluntly, you were either a part of the PNA, you were in the in-group, or you were in the out-group. The people who were in the out-group out really didn't have, uh, you know, you know, much of any available channels available to them to continue to, to push on. So they'd be kind They could publish, they could protest, and no one would listen, that's all. That's they, they, could, well, they, 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 they could publish and protest if Yasser Arafat allowed them to publish and protest, right? That's a different issue. You didn't bring that up. You didn't say the freedom of press. Right. Well, and, 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 and that's what I bring up, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, that, you know, he was also not only good about co-optation, but also that when he needed to, he wouldn't mind repressing his opponents, arresting them. Um, throwing him into jail. So that also feeds in, which, which I believe better creates a, a stronger divide between you know, the, what, what I'm calling democracies and non-democracies in the study. Here and then back. Yeah, no, um, okay, so to answer this last question first, yeah, no, the Jordan-Egyptian legal, yeah, the, the Jordan legal, be, right, between 48 and 67, they're crucial. And I just, as I was enumerating them, I just, you know, skipped those 20 years. But it's very important because then you had Jordanian law in the West Bank was totally different than Egyptian law in Gaza. Again, this also, when they came really to figure out what type of legal uh, code was going to be established in these, in, in these areas, there was a lot of confusion as to, you know, which, which, which I suppose, legal code was going to prevail. Um, and they started just tearing things down and rebuilding them and, and, and trying to see what other countries were doing. So it was a lot of confusion there. Well, it, it did because, in a sense, they were empowering Palestinians at the municipal level, yeah. right? Um, and so allowing them not necessarily to, to quote-unquote, rule their own societies, in a sense, but at least allowing them to make, you know, local decisions at these, you know, you know at the local level. Um, and, and they were coordinating with the Palestinians on the type of laws that would guide, you know, villages and, in some cases, even the cities. But it wasn't necessarily, nothing was really in the way of, you know, being institutionalized as a distinct, if you may, Palestinian legal code at the time. It was really seen still as part of the Israeli legal um, code. But there was, there was more autonomy given to, at least as they call it, like, you know, when the municipalities were given more autonomy by the Israelis. But back to your first question about Gaza, um, I initially wanted to do, this, this study, you're right, is completely done in the West Bank. But initially, it was supposed to be a West Bank Gaza study. Uh, the problem with the during this time period, I wish I had a map here, is that to travel from the West Bank to Gaza, you had to go through these multiple, 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 multiple checkpoints. And Gaza wasn't, a sta wasn't very stable at the time. So you could, so just make it, I guess, simple, is that I didn't think it was going to be feasible to do the study in, 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 in Gaza and be able to get in and out of Gaza as frequently as I needed to, to oversee the project in both Gaza and the West Bank. So I made a decision and I, I decided to stay on the West Bank at the time. more education you have, the less support democracy. But then in your response to the first press 
Okay, so um, edu yeah, education actually. Let me just let's put this up. And I thought that must have run through the pro PNA thing. If more educated people are in pro PNA groups, no, um, it, it it wasn't actually. Um, it, but it was it wasn't it was um, the less educated have higher levels of interpersonal trust. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, actually, but the, um, conversely, if you're more educated, you're more likely, again, outside of the confines of associations, to have higher support for democratic institutions. Um, but, but you asked an important question, which is what was the rationale that the educated, like, so when you see, I mean, your expectation is that the educated people, if you may, shouldn't be buying into the clientelistic channels of, 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 of the PNA, or at least they should be the most vocal against it, and that wasn't the case. And so what explains that? Why was that, why was that not happening? And here, you know, ideology plays a role. Um, basically, in the book, I outlined basically three major factors that structured support for, for Yasser Arafat. One of them was clientelism, but there were two other, others, uh, two other factors. Did you support Fetah as a political movement, Yasser Arafat's political party, and did you support the peace process? And a lot of the educated people did support the peace process. So, and they felt that they would be better off. They understood that Yasser Arafat was very corrupt, you know, he was, also, you know, to a lot of people, he was a disgrace in, in, in that sense because, you know, a lot of people would say to me in, in the interviews, look at we've been mobilizing against Israeli occupation for the last 20 years, and look what we got now, you know. Um, we mobilize on a platform of human rights and democracy, and look at he's taking everything away, right? But look at if we bring in another leadership, we don't know if they're going to, that the Americans will accept or the Israelis will accept, and Yasser Arafat is trying to move the peace process forward, right? I mean, that was at least the, 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 the belief on the ground. So those were factors that also explain how the educated people were, I guess, uh, leveraging their concerns and their priorities. Okay, so this then gets us back to the importance of Gaza, right? Which aren't, is, not, sorry, is not in my sample. Um, Hamas has a major presence in the civic sector in Gaza. And on the West Bank in 1999, it, it hadn't necessarily dominated the civic sector, but it was growing in its presence, right? Um, so especially after 2000, especially after the Intifada of 2000, where basically Yasser Arafat is also um, hit, you know, Donor countries are no longer giving Yasser Arafat money after 2000, and they're starting to curb that, you know, curb th th those levels of funding. He's no longer able to sustain the civic sector that he's sustaining. It's the first casualty of of of, of limiting the the, mon the money um, that Yasser Arafat had access to, um, and so Hamas is able to capitalize on this. I mean, one of the reasons why Hamas was so successful in the elections um, in 2006 is precisely because of this. All of a sudden, you have a Palestinian civil society, if you may, that has become dependent. And it's, I don't want to say being pampered, but it's become dependent and somewhat comfortable with its access. And all of a sudden, that access is being taken away. And Hamas is able to step to the plate, not necessarily offer the same services, but really showcase itself as the reasonable alternative. At least, they're not corrupt, right? This is their message. They're not corrupt. They're clean. Um, and you start talking to people on the streets, and they say, well, there's the Fetah Civic Association that, that makes baked goods. And here's the Hamas Civic Association that sells pastries. We're going to go to the Hamas one because we know that they distribute the pro pro They don't care about Hamas, and they don't care about the political ideology of Hamas, right? These are Christians, right? But we're going to support, we're going to buy our goods here because we know that the profits will be distribute, fa distributed fairly to the orphans, right? So this, so Hamas is able to sell itself as the quote-unquote halal uh, partner in this process of building a civic community um, and addressing the needs of the Palestinian people. Um, so this is kind of what's happening at this time period. What's the implication of that for you? Well, the implication is very, very, very important. <laughs> um, See, here's the question. Um, this raises a whole other research question. So if we looked at Hamas civic associations today, and, and we asked, are these associations run inherently democratic? You know, in their internal dealings, are they democratic? 
Do they respect one another? Do they tolerate one another? Do they engage one another? They're very extremely democratic, right? I mean, that's how Hamas is able to keep people in its civic associations. And when we ask people in these Hamas civic associations, do you have levels of social capital? In fact, what we find is that their levels of social capital are higher than what we found in the Fetih civic associations because they, they at least internally, they work with one another, they appreciate one another, they, re they realize the value of one another. Um, and then, you know, do they appreciate democracy? Yes, they, they, they understand the value of democracy. And in fact, Islamist movements, not only Hamas, but Islamist movements across the region right now are the strongest proponents of democracy because they have the most to benefit from democracy, right? So then the question is, which is not my research question here, but a, an important research question is then, what role does political ideology play in these formulas, right? Will Hamas be the vanguard of democratic development through civil society, right? Um, that's, that's the key question, and I think that's a research question that you're interested in as well. Right. <laughs> More questions? Uh, yeah, well, just following up on that, uh, what uh, the problem? How much of the theory that you're dealing with assumes that you will get good outcomes when you do this, as opposed to getting Hamas? Um, uh, in other words, I mean, what happened? Condoleezza Rice before the Muslim Brotherhood did so well in Egypt. Right. Every third word was democracy about Egypt, and after that, it didn't come up at all. Uh, it's sort of like George Bush talking about victory in Iraq. Right. Uh, right. The word has ceased to exist. Um, so, so how much? The assumption was that they'll, they'll get together democratically and come up with things that I approve of. He's a theorist, right? But that's in there somewhere. Um, well, I, I, the theorist, um, in terms of whether or not we're going to get democracy through these models, um, I mean, the, I, the theorist, basically, am arguing in, uh, in terms of this study is that without complementing civil society reform, if you may, with institutional reform, it's not, that we're going to get these unanticipated outcomes, right? So the Hamas was a triumph of democracy. Hamas was a triumph. I mean, they basically went against this corrupt regime. Right. Uh, and they, they organized very carefully. They got these, these organizations who were great on the street, you know, providing goods for people and an alternative, despite the fact that the government had all the money, albeit mm -hmm. uh, declining. And they, they toppled the government. <laughs> and, 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 well, okay, so there's two things. Let me just argue. Well, actually, I mean, okay, so, okay, so just to build on that, if we think about the Arab world and the resilience of authoritarianism in the Arab world, the Hamas victory was the first peaceful transition from authoritarianism to democracy since World War II in the Arab world. We have never seen a peaceful transition to democracy. So, the, so at least now we can say, well, there was a democratic experience. Um, <laughs> Two things though about the Hamas victory. One is that had there had there if, if there weren't if there wasn't external manipulation of the election laws and the electoral districting at the time, for some reason the, the the consultants who structured the Palestinian electoral districts at the eve of the elections was a Swedish Swedish pool a, a, a Swedish NGO that basically you know was going to promise a democratic outcome the most democratic you know this you know system of democratic rules and districting i don't know the details of it but the fact of the matter is that the district the districting itself disadvantaged fatah right um so had the, the, if we look at the popular vote fatah won the popular vote right so kind of like kind of what happens here in the united states but <laughs> let's leave that sorry <laughs> sorry if we leave that aside right still the never, nevertheless Hamas made great gains at the civil society level because it, it, it was able to attract the, the, the protest vote, right? The protest vote of people who weren't happy with Fatih. But the question that we're not able to answer is what would have ha happened if Hamas was allowed to rule? If all of a sudden Hamas was no longer an opposition movement and lo and behold, you're going to be accountable to a democratic process. And, and that we don't know. So, I mean, so in other words, to understand the question of, you know, was this going to be really a time for democracy or was it time for um, Islamic, you know, radicalism or Islamic, you know, uh, you know the, the nightmares that everybody has about Islamists participating in, in elections, we don't know because all the examples that have, that we possibly could have learned from, the Algeria experience, the Palestinian experience, um, the Egyptian experience to a large extent, those voices that then want to participate in the open um, haven't been allowed the right to really to, to really lead. I mean, you know, would Hamas also? You know, the big question is, would Hamas have been a, have been forced 
to uphold the agreements that had already been struck with Israel. This was a question that we never got to because everybody basically said Hamas has to leave power immediately. So now we have the two-state solution. Yeah, we don't like the results. And so the joke on the Palestinian street is that this is not the two-state solution we wanted, Hamas and Gaza and Fatah and the West Bank, right? So, so yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it.